Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello, welcome to the show. Brought to you by The Athletic, along with us, lot from The Square Ball. Dan here from The Square Ball, and just the two of us today. Phil, Phil Hay from The Athletic. Hello. Hello. No Normanson today. He's uh, he's doing a test walk for this summer's charity walk, walking between the glamorous towns of Burnley and Bolton today. International break. He's uh, He's gone on his jollies. Yes, more Phil him, I would say. Just a quick reminder to read Phil's articles, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Plenty more on top of that as well. The uh, the pre-match and post-match discussions in which Phil himself takes part. Let's have a discussion now then, shall we, about this international break and the chance for everybody to uh, exhale. Yes, I, I was sort of being facetious about Normanton, but actually there must be something quite nice about getting out into the wilds of Merseyside or wherever he is, taking in a bit of fresh air. I think... Gracia and the players will be pleased of it as well. Obviously, some will be away for and are away for international duty. From what I understand, the others have been given a, a bit of time off. I think it might be the first chance that Gracia gets to see his, his family and his children since taking the Leeds job. That's always the thing about management, especially when you get pitched into a new position, is that you pretty much have to abandon absolutely everything else. I was chatting this morning to Simon Grayson for a piece we're about to do on the job he's got coaching in India and he was saying that he's back at the moment for all of eight or nine days and and this is the first time he's been in England to see his family and everything else since August and it's the same thing you know the, these jobs get offered to you if you take them and the commitment is vast the fixture list is sometimes crammed as it was for Gracia right at the very start so I think he'll be grateful of a bit of time to think a bit of time to reflect on what's going on and even better, given that he can reflect on some pretty good results in a much better league position. He's been saying in interviews recently, hasn't he? Or is it in the um, in the press conferences? Have I saying that he's been living up at Thorpe Arch and doing very very long days? My my immediate first thought with that film was that is that Marcelo's bed that he's in? It, it probably is. <laughs> and the good news for him is that not only was the a, a bed built into that office, but there was also a little bit of a kitchen kitchenette that he can use. And it's interesting actually speaking to people about Gracia that it's they're not trying to compare him to Bielsa as such but I think they do see certain traits in him that are quite recognisable he has definitely this very kind of um, good mix I think of firm and fair I interviewed Mark Rocker last week piece ran on, on Tuesday um, on our site and he was saying that with Gracia you know it, it can be strict but it can be fun and I think with Gracia he's a, a very nice guy and I think very easy to want to no real nonsense and, and no messing. And I think a good example of that would be the situation with Chris Armas, um, who is still technically speaking on the coaching staff at Leeds, but has no role there. And, you know, that was Gracia's decision when he came to put his backroom team together. Um, Scubala is involved with it at the moment. But with Armas, it was a case of, no, look, it's not personal and, you know, it's nothing like that. But this is a team I want and he's not in it. So, as we stand, I think we're really just waiting to see how it is that Armas and Leeds are going to work this out and go their, their separate ways. But, you know, he is very, very dedicated guy, Gracia. I mean, it, it's not to pretend that other coaches aren't. And I think I said this in the piece we did when he first took over. 
piece I wrote with Adam Leventhal about Grassi's background, who he was and, and, and what his style of coaching tends to be, that everybody's meticulous these days, aren't they? If you're not meticulous, you're never going to get anywhere in coaching. But he, he certainly is. And it does seem to me that the players have taken to him fairly rapidly. You're not getting the sense of uncertainty about what he's asking them to do. You're not getting the sense of resistance to his ideas. And I would think already that within the dressing room, there'll be that feeling of this might actually work for us and we have a good chance of staying up. You've now painted a picture of Chris Armas turning up like David Brent used to turn up back at Wernham Hog in the office. They might start showing up with a Labrador soon and just hanging around, not doing anything specific, just turning up, even though it doesn't work. <laughs> and, until he gets told that he's no longer allowed to, to be in the building. He is he is contracted though, and that's obviously not his fault. It's the legacy of the timing of when he was appointed. I think, if truth be told, obviously he came in as Marsh's assistant, but I think the club thought that Armas could be useful regardless, you know, that, that going further down the line, if it wasn't going to be Marsh who was head coach, that somebody else might want Armas to, to work within their team. But Gracia, like a lot of people, you know, like Bielsa is an example, and, and Marsh was different in this sense. Marsh didn't really have around him people who'd been with him long-term. Marich, for example, Rennie Marich, the first time they'd worked together at Leeds. Armas, slightly different. He'd been with Marsh at, um, at New York Red Bulls. But with Bielsa, it was long-serving lieutenants. With Gracia, it's you know like Aaron Aldi, for example. People who've been with him in previous jobs, people who he trusts and... I totally understand any head coach who needs to know exactly who's around them and, and wants to have precisely the team that they feel that that, that is, is necessary. So he's entitled to be at the club, as Armas. He, he absolutely is, in a way that David Brent wasn't really <laughs> entitled to be at, at Wormham Hog. But this will have to get sorted out. I mean, this, this can't be an indefinite situation where somebody who is quite clearly not needed is still on the books. And how do you think Javi will reflect now he's got a little bit of time away from it all? on seven points from his opening four games. I think Ellen Road feels like a a calmer place if I had to put one word on it. Yeah, I think that's true. I think he'd be very happy. Very happy. I don't think he would have asked for more than seven points from those four games. I don't think, irrespective of what's been going on with Potter at Chelsea and the feeling we all had that they might have been vulnerable on that weekend when Leeds went down to Stamford Bridge. And I think they were, actually. It was, you know... It wasn't um, it wasn't sweetness and light there, but that was a game that you knew on the you know, the balance of probability Leeds were, were going to lose or, or take very little from. And having seen Brighton in the flesh, hard to deny that that point against them was a very valuable one. But have won the two games that they needed to win, which was Southampton and and Wolves. And where I think you know on the other side of this international break, there's the potential for quite a torrid afternoon against Arsenal. I think even if it is a torrid afternoon against Arsenal, everybody will be able to be more rational about it because you will say, well, you know, they are league leaders. They are very close to the title to the extent that I think they might do it now, Arsenal. They're going to have to have a really big slump somewhere and it's very difficult to see where that's coming. So if that game doesn't go well, then then perhaps that game was never going to go well. But on the other side of that, you have Forest at home, you have Palace at home, and you would like to think that what we've learned from the Southampton and the Wolves games are that Leeds know how to win those matches. Gracia knows how to win those matches and they have a very good chance of winning them. And if they do, the table will look completely different. Yeah, those home games, that stretch of home games. And you've got to include Liverpool in that, I guess, as well, haven't you? As, the, as one of the three that happens consecutively, that's going to define the season, it feels like. I think Liverpool falls into the category of game which could be very rewarding, but also 
you have no idea which version of Liverpool will appear at Ellen Road. And if it's the best version of them, then there's probably not too much going to come back from that fixture. So not really one that, one that you can put down and say, definitely not a write-off, definitely not a, a kind of free hit, if you want to use that term, but potentially a game that on the night proves to be too difficult. A Forest and Palace, completely different, completely different kettle of fish because neither of those clubs are in a good way at the moment. And maybe this is just uh, because it is the the international break and everything's just calmed down for a week or two. But I'm comparing how I feel now, speaking personally as a fan, versus how I felt maybe a couple of months ago. And I used the word karma before, but to to expand on that, it always felt like what was happening under Marsh was never... And I go all the way back to when he first arrived, actually, in that 12-game run at the end of last season. Never quite felt under control. And ah. maybe that was down to... The, the style of football, Phil, I don't know. So do, do you agree that the, the sort of chaotic Red Bull style football, it never felt particularly like we would control games and then it sort of spiralled beyond the controlling games into a sense of sort of wider control, I guess. Does that make do, sense? Do you know when it did feel under control was exactly this time last year in the international break when they'd won at Watford. Uh, or at least, sorry, it wasn't international break. It was the two-week break that came because of rearranged fixtures, I think, or, or the cup. After Watford, there was about a fortnight off and there was a huge gap suddenly between Leeds and, and the bottom three because they'd had that win at Wolves, equally kind of dramatic, different, but you know, dramatic in its own way and comparable to last weekend. And then what had been a by no means a classic at Watford, Leeds got the better of it in the, in the closing stages, 1-3-0, and you know, went away from there. I think most of us and them feeling like they were just about safe. And as it turned out, the table turned pretty quickly. But yeah, it, it does feel calmer. I think we still need probably a, a wider run of fixtures to be sure about what's going on under Grassi, you know, how well it's working, how I guess how ingrained tactics and ideas are, are starting to become. But I have been impressed so far. And I think in these circumstances, you always have to consider that for all that it won't be perfect and there will be flaws and there'll be aspects of it that you think aren't necessarily great or, or aren't ideal, He's inherited a really difficult situation and also at a time of the season where, you know, you have no room for manoeuvre. You're coming in and really being told, look, results now, results yesterday, at the very latest results tomorrow. And he's managed to to deliver on that. And I think for him, digging out that Southampton win with, what, 15 minutes to go, you know, a game that was quite close to getting away from them, a nil-nil draw would have been of very little use on that afternoon. It was just the, the right start, the right start, the right result at the right time and he, he looks pretty comfortable in his skin I think Gracia yeah, Do you think it's reflected in what Junior Firpo has been saying in the last week or two as well about there being a, a more of a sense of calm and control and he mentioned not being shouted at <laughs> constantly <laughs> and, and not the relentless pressing and, and you can't help but read those comments and think perhaps that's a reflection on what was going on under Marsh and perhaps even Bielsa before that Well yeah potentially under Bielsa I know it's not much of a secret that Firpo found the transition from Barcelona to Leeds difficult Bielsa was way up the scale in terms of intensity. If you talk to people who know how Barcelona operated back then, they were actually quite far down the scale when it came to the average training day. It was nothing like what was going on at Thorpe Arch. So it was, climatisation I don't think was was particularly easy. And when I spoke to Rocker, so he actually said to me, he said, I did enjoy working under Marsh, but when results aren't coming, and these were his words, when results aren't coming, in the end, something has to change. You know, something has to change, and it normally is the, the head coach. And he talked about Gracia having a bit more of an approach in training sessions or a focus in training sessions on 
possession, having more of the ball. And also said Gracia had really, really been banging the drum about being ruthless in both boxes. You know, about and, and I know that's that's kind of the very obvious thing to say, isn't it? But I very much doubt with Gracia it's a case of saying we need to be ruthless and then walking out the room. You know, you'll be applying techniques and, and strategies and drills and everything else to, to trying to to get that into their heads. And you saw it at Wolves with the finishing. You know, Leeds were absolutely deadly. And as Rocker said, not in Spanish, in English, but in his conversion of Spanish, it was like goals mean points, points mean prizes. You know, that's, <laughs> that is how, how it goes. And I think perhaps that's the one thing that Gracia has managed to do with them is to say to them, listen, you either deliver or you don't. And in, when it comes to delivering and when it comes to saying that you're playing well and everything else, that is that only stands up and it's only worth saying if you are actually getting points on the board and that's what they've started to do. How important do you think Rodrigo's going to be for the, the closing out of this Hugely. season as well? Because he's, he's, now, he's now coming back into the side. We saw, I mean, he wasn't great at Wolves, was he? But he came on and he did what he needed to do, which was to put the ball into the net. Yeah, but I mean, bear in mind that he came onto the pitch at the point where Wolves were kind of swarming forward. And I still think there were a few tactical factors in the game. One was definitely Wolves taking off Neves, which was just weird. I thought he was controlling the flow. He was playing very, very well. Matino didn't do anything like the same the same sort of job. But also, and we mentioned this on Monday, Somerville was a clever substitution, I thought, because it just restored a little bit of attacking potency to, to the Leeds team. And I think that... That then helped to get Rodrigo into the game slightly more. And no, not not perfect. But when the chance came, when that chance came, took it absolutely brilliantly. And he is on it this season. He is as much as you can be on it, I think, in a team who have been 19th, who've been relegation battle now for many, many weeks. One of the things Gracia said after the game at his press conference um, at Molyneux was that he really, really hoped that through these two weeks, he would be able to work on Rodrigo and push him in a way which would give him the scope to start on the other side of the international break, that he would be able to start games, not necessarily complete 90 minutes straight away, but to be an option from the outset. And I think if he is an option, if, if he is fit enough to do that, then he has to play. Now with sort of three years of, of Premier League football under our belts, would you agree with me that, that perhaps the single most important factor when it comes to surviving and thriving in the Premier League is taking your chances when they come? Yeah, I think that's... I think that's definitely true, but I'm also more convinced than ever that having a kind of coherent and sensible plan that works is the, the basis for absolutely everything. And as I pick through the pick through the table, you can see it in the clubs who are doing well, I think, particularly Brighton and particularly Brentford, I think, who just have really clear train of thought when it comes to what they're doing, who they have confidence in, who they have faith in, continuity in the squad and the lineup, but not so much continuity, certainly in Brighton's case, although Brentford have done this over the years as well. No, in Brighton's case, equally the confidence to say, it's a lot of money being offered for that player, let's sell him and get somebody else, which they do. And I think having the confidence to do that, and I guess as well, not, not being too worried about the incoming fire from supporters or media coverage or anything else when you decide to do that, keeps a steady ship running you know and and it it means that you you basically have that inherent belief that you will take the money and find something either just as good or better or or something that that will work for you Um, and as time goes on you tick over really nicely it's not to say and, and I always make this point it's not to say that in a few years time we won't be talking about Brentford having suddenly run into trouble or Brighton having suddenly run into trouble although I feel like it's far less likely with Brighton but 
to step back and look at what they're actually doing, it's not difficult to understand why it's why it's very steady at both clubs, why both clubs seem pretty content and are in good nick. Further down the league, you start to ask yourself how many of what those clubs would call projects are actually working. At Leeds, it clearly hasn't, you know, over the past two seasons. Palace have sacked Vieira. You know, Rogers has run into trouble at, at Leicester. He and Moyes at West Ham are probably slightly different, actually, in that they've had good times and you st- and, and there are obviously other factors as well um, around them, particularly at Leicester where money's become an issue. But cycles do reach an end, don't they? And not everything lasts forever as, as we saw with Bielsa. But, you know, I, I think, yes, taking your chances is a big thing. But I think taking your chances is probably what gets you out of trouble towards the end. You know, if you take your chances, then yeah, you finish 15th, 16th rather than 18th, 19th, 20th. But if you want to sit 7th, 8th, 9th and you want to be properly comfortable then it does probably come down to the project Yeah you look at Southampton club like Southampton who are currently bottom of the table who have like gone for youth this year haven't they and you you would almost identify that as a club that is trying to undertake a, a reset or a, or a type of project wouldn't you it's hard to know where it's going to take them this season because they are in many people's eyes favourites to go down Well they definitely are favourites to go down given the league position Actually, it, Leeds have gone for a youthful approach as well. I, I make this point regularly that they never ever sign anybody 30 years of age or older, ever. They're totally out of that category of signings. They don't go for kind of established or proven Premier League footballers particularly. It does tend to be projects with individuals. Um, it does tend to be signing potential players with, with resale value. There is some real talent in the academy, without a doubt, and we saw last week Archie Gray getting his first professional contract. That's been in the pipeline for a long time. Um, he wasn't able to sign it until he's turned 17, but he turned 17 the previous weekend and it was always the case. Here's the cake, sign the contract. Uh, yes, yeah, very much so. I, I wrote about him during his GCSE week and I was talking about how when he was 15, you know, he needed his own dressing room at games for safeguarding reasons and when Leeds went to Australia in pre-season, he was offered a chaperone, which I think he said no to, again, because of his age the club are obliged to say, look, if you need someone to help you over there and someone to look after you and look out for you, then you're perfectly entitled to take them them with you. He's grown up a little bit, so he's he's now 17, but you can't actually sign professional forms until you get to the age of, uh, of 17. Uh, Leeds were never, ever going to let it go any length of time beyond his birthday before getting him tied down, and they'll have been planning this for a long time. A few people were a bit surprised that it was only two and a half years, but the reason for that is that while you're um, below the age of 18, the maximum length of deal you can sign is three years in length. Three years would have taken him to the middle of a season, which you never do. So two and a half years takes him to the end of 2024-25 season and falls in the summer as, as contracts have to. I don't think it will be long post-18 um, where there is another offer or further talks of why don't we turn this into a... 20-year deal yeah. or something, <laughs> take, something like that. Take him to yeah. the pub, buy him his first legal pint, yes. sign the forms. Yeah, yeah, or five legal, or five <laughs> first legal pints and say, no, this is all fine, just stick your, stick your name stick your name on it. But yeah, that will be, on, on the minds, will be to make that more substantial when the when the rules and the laws allow them them to do that. But it's a good move um, because Gray is quite clearly an incredibly talented footballer. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, and this week on the Athletic Football Podcast, we're bringing you a two-part special on the future of football. What will the expanded 48-team World Cup look like? 
And is it actually such a terrible idea? Plus, UEFA against FIFA, a Super League in disguise. How would you feel if your team became part of a multi-club model? There is a lot to get stuck into. Matt Slater, Adam Crafton and Laura Williamson will be with us. Just search for the Athletic Football Podcast wherever you listen. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Should we introduce a pantomime villain then? Phil, you've written about Peter Ridsdale this week along with uh, Daniel Taylor, your colleague. Yes, <laughs> pantomime villain indeed. 20 years to the day today since Ridsdale's last game as chairman, uh, which was away at Liverpool. And as referenced in that piece, the cop singing, the cop at Anfield singing, there's only one Peter Ridsdale, which I think is as good a way as any of depicting the complete farce it had become and the fact that it was end of end of days for him. And, and so... Not far off, twenty years on from Ridsdale resigning and uh, that that era ending, I was thinking about this this morning, and I don't think there's been a period of football ownership that's been more discussed. Certainly in English football, at any stage in in history, people might argue differently or, or have an idea of other alternatives. And I suppose because football ownership has now become such a a lightning rod, really, for attention and for criticism, the, the Glazers are muscling in on that and. A lot of criticism of FSG at Liverpool and every time anybody buys into Premier League club now they tend to be big personalities big egos hugely wealthy and it, it attracts that type of coverage but Ridsdale and Leeds were the original basket case weren't they or they were they were the original example of how Premier League money does not stretch so far despite the feeling that it's in you know endlessly wealthy at that level it doesn't stretch so far that that you cannot one day get yourself into trouble even as a Premier League club it, Ridsdale does kind of say in the piece I have to say there's quite a bit in there that he says that I don't necessarily agree with he says you know what what really did it was relegation and and that is true to the point that relegation was what really threw petrol on the fire but I think the club was comprehensively burning by that point anyway and there are a lot of people who've analyse the finances who feel that even had Leeds qualified for the Champions League in the season when they didn't under O'Leary and and that is almost painted as the line in the sand of you know that was when it all tipped over and started to go wrong even had that happened the money they committed to in transfer fees the, the wage bill everything else was probably by that point or arguably by that point out of control 
to a level where it was always going to catch up with them and it was always going to become a problem. And I, I think the demise as it occurred was painted really, in my view anyway, by the way in which they started to spend and more, probably more to the point, the way in which they started to structure the payment of transfers. Well, I read that in full this morning and that was the one point that really grinded my gears, him suggesting that it was it was relegation that, that did for Leeds. It wasn't at all. Because that absolves him of the responsibility of the contracts that he signed to buy players and the contracts that he signed with players. I mean, even a bit of basic research on it from a fan's point of view will lead you back to registered European football finance. Do you remember the deals that Leeds got into with that? Which, which was essentially, to put it in really simple terms, was like you know, getting a house on a mortgage, getting yes. a player on a mortgage, whereby we borrowed that money from REFF and then when the player was sold... Uh, you would then pay back what you've borrowed upon the player being sold. So let's say we borrowed £7 million on a particular player and that player is sold. Fine, you pay off the balance of your of your mortgage. Then The problem is we got ourselves into a negative equity situation because the transfer market collapsed and there was no forecasting of that. So we were trying to get rid of players on huge contracts after we'd gone down that weren't worth what we would have to pay back. So if we managed to sell the £7 million footballer, let's take Mark Viduka for an example, he was about £6 million, wasn't he? So if we sold him for £2 million to Middlesbrough, let's say, then we still owed £6 million to REFF. Well, ab- absolutely. Which it, it, so, I should stress it's a theoretical example because it's a bit more complex than that. I, but. I, I would probably disagree that the transfer market collapsed because clearly they bought Ferdinand as an example for £18 million, sold him for 30 to Manchester United. But what happened was that the performance levels started to dip quite severely. So players naturally became worth less money, you know, as, as, as tends to be the case. They were no longer outstanding, high-performing Champions League footballers, even if they could be. They weren't there and then. And as time went on, Leeds started to become distressed sellers as well. So everybody could see that you did not have to pay top dollar to Leeds. And the arrangements that Leeds had, the money they'd borrowed, the money they paid back, was of no interest to other clubs. It's not their problem. It was never their problem at all. And, you know, as, as time went on, it became a case of trying to find anybody who would take take these players. I mean, I, I spoke to David Richmond and, and Gerald Krasner is also quoted in the piece. They were the, um, the board who took Leeds on in 2004, March 2004. And still does try to lay some blame at their door for, for relegation. But given that they were they arrived, you know, a month and a half before Leeds went down. I don't think of all the things you can pin to the Krasner regime, I don't think that's one. I mean, for example, they sold Ellen Road and Thorpe Arch and you will find still a piece in the Independent from back then where Melvin Levi and the late Melvin Levi admits that the reason they were sold was because the board at the time owed money via loans that they'd taken to buy Leeds. So they were selling the stadium and the, the, the training ground, certainly in part, as collateral to pay for their loans. It wasn't as if this money was piling into the into the club's coffers and that's why it was being done. And you had Simon Morris there and everything else. There's a lot that you can pin to the Krasner regime. And David Richmond does actually say, were we good owners? No, we absolutely weren't. He, he kind of accepts that it was a weird collection of people who were in it, as he puts it, with, you know, with their own different agendas. But he also makes the point, I think he's right, that by March 2004, when they bought the club, there was virtually nobody out there with serious credibility who wanted to touch it. You know, there, there was nobody who was going to take it on. And Richmond says it was toxic at that point. It became very, very toxic under Ridsdale. And if you consider what came after, it kind of rem- it 
retained a toxic reputation, lead, certainly in ownership circles, for years after that. It wasn't like 12 months of toxicity where people were saying, not going to touch that, but you know, a little bit further down the line. 12 years later, you still had Chilino in there and the, and the issues with Chilino and then Radrizani buying the club. And I think you can probably say that Radrizani was the line in the sand, as is seen, I think, by the fact that you've now got 49ers enterprises in the background. Leeds have become far more saleable. They've become far more attractive to, to invest in. And they're no longer the kind of financial basket case that they were back when it was all falling to bits under under Ridsdale. But it's taken a generation. For it me. has taken a generation. And that is why, you know, the crux of the piece is 20 years on, have people forgiven him? Have people forgotten? And I think the answer is broadly no. But um, the, pro- the problem is, Phil, as well, there's, there's still that lack of humility in there. there. There is some mere culpa in there, but you can't help but read this article and feel that what he's trying to do is saying, yeah, I messed up, but actually there's all this other stuff and it wasn't all my fault. And I think he's almost railing against the accusation that he was at fault primarily for this. Yeah. It's the argument, isn't it, that it was a collective board, which it was, you know, it was a PLC, but he was the front of it. And I I, I think you probably as well have to reflect on the fact, and Moscow wrote about this really well a while back now, that Ridsdale was front and centre. Whether he chose to do that, whether it was deliberate, whether it was intentional, and some people would say it definitely was, he made himself front and centre. He was a face of the club in the way that owners didn't used to be the face of the club at all. And suddenly he was, and when people spoke about Leeds, they didn't just speak about O'Leary or Baduka or whoever else. They spoke about Ridsdale, you know, Ridsdale leading this juggernaut that was suddenly into the Champions League and, and into the, the semi-finals. Not everything Ridsdale did at Leeds was bad. Not everything can be totally blamed on him. I mean, the, the one thing I often refer to or, or tend to refer to is the managing of the, the deaths of Kevin Spate and, and Chris Loftus in Istanbul. When I think... You know, and the families certainly say this, they hold Ridsdale in extremely high regard because of the way he coped with that situation, what he did, the support he gave them. They really don't have a bad word to say about them. And I, I met for the article I wrote a couple of years ago, I met George Spate and Andy Loftus, and I think it was George who said, I'll never have anything but very good wishes towards Ridsdale and I'll never think anything other than very highly of him because in those circumstances, and you almost have to, I think you have to concede the death of two supporters is vastly more important than financial collapse of a football club. I'm not saying financial collapse of a football club is something anybody should accept or not be critical of, but you, you know you, you have to have perspective about that. In those circumstances, he acted as a pretty, pretty much exemplary chairman, I think, in, in those circumstances. But on the financial front, what I think is quite fascinating is that 20 years on, it's still a massive blame game isn't it? You've still got, nobody can quite accept that it was their fault. Even in the article, Ridsdale says, the financial collapse of the things, for all the things I would blame myself for, the financial collapse of Leeds isn't one of them. But here's the thing, people remember that he wrote a book about what went on at Ellen Road, United We Fall, published um, a couple of years after he, or a few years after he left. It was ghostwritten, as I recall, by Steve Dennis, who's the brother of um, Ian Dennis, BBC Five Live commentator. And I went to interview Ridsdale when he released it. He was doing interview sessions at, at Suline in, in Le- restaurant in Leeds. And the first thing I asked him was, why have you done this? You know, Why have you written this? What was the motivation? And he said to me then, and I tried to dig out the interview, but I couldn't find it online. He said, because I want to say sorry. You know, I want to say sorry to people for what happened. 
sorry about the the way it went, sorry what happened to the club, sorry for the situation there and now. And, you know, it seemed and sounded fairly genuine at the time, but it almost feels, reading the quotes now, and it was Danny who went to interview him there at Preston's training ground last week. Danny Taylor. Uh, Danny Taylor, yeah. Reading the quotes, it almost feels as if he's hardened in a different direction towards thinking, I'm not prepared to be blamed for this, or I'm not prepared to be blamed alone for this or or outright for it. Um, is, is that problematic though as well? Because you read this account of it and you go back to maybe that account of it and, and the Sands always feel like they're shifting. Always. And that then brings questions of its own, doesn't it, about the credibility of his version? Always. I, I mean, I'm at the moment, I am knee-deep in a Vladimir Romanov wormhole and that piece, I think, will be out either over the weekend or next week. But it's so about the, Romanov. The, the Hearts Yeah, that. Romanov's management running of Hearts from kind of 2005. Yeah, is this a labour of love? <laughs> I've, I've, I've really enjoyed writing it, actually. When I, when I was first asked to do it, I, going into it cold, because I don't cover Hearts, so I don't have a huge number of contacts up there. And I, I said to them, this story's vast. You know, it's absolutely massive. I'm thinking the timescale, it'll be difficult. But people have been extremely helpful and told some, some great stories, which I totally believe and I'm sure are accurate and, and everything else but the chances are if I wrote about Romanoff as many times as I've, as I've written about Ridsdale or if people in general wrote about Romanoff as much as Ridsdale has been written about the stories would change wouldn't they things would be told slightly differently in five years time ten years time people's recollections wouldn't be the same people's attitudes to what went on uh, might have altered as well I definitely think between the Ridsdale I interviewed for the book and the Ridsdale who's quoted in this piece, there does seem to be a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think he's not a bad person, evidently, and I think it's really important to to not treat this as a as a black and white issue. You say the, the way that he handled the um, the family's post-Istanbul was, was exam- exemplary at the time under impossible circumstances. And you read in the article as well about the human cost for his kids as well. And I can't now, you know, 20 years on from that, read that and not relate it back to my own circumstances and think, that must be horrible. If somebody was like, you know, picking out my kids for, you know, attention and saying, we know where your kids go to school, we know where you live, things like that, that'd be, it'd be absolutely dreadful. But you can't help um, return to the point that you made, which was about how he placed himself front and centre in all this. And signings on the pitch, he was alongside Seth Johnson, you know, pitching on the pitch. He was alongside... Rio Ferdinand when he was paraded on the pitch he made it about him and then of course there was the the DVD which we watched it back a year or two back for a more in-depth kind of uh, thing that we did that's on on the extra ball we watched the whole DVD and it's cringeworthy my Leeds United this kind of sepia tinged view of of him hopping on buses when he was a kid around Leeds and imagine if imagine if Todd Bowley did that now for Chelsea released a, a video about himself, his own upbringing. Is that, is that unlikely? Well, no, but I'm, I'm trying to think Probably of the most... more likely now than well, ever. Well, I, I was trying not? to think of the likeliest example, but then I was also thinking, imagine what the reaction to that would be. You'd be like, this guy's an absolute fool. I mean, think of, think of the, the Amazon documentaries about Leeds, you know, following Radrazani around in Milan, speaking to club officials behind the scenes, Kinnear, Otter and others. You, you've seen it at, with Sunderland. Uh, they've done it with Arsenal, done it with, with Tottenham. These people in, in these positions are more front and centre than they've ever been before. And you know, I think the point Moscow was making in his article was that the, the genesis of that almost was Ridsdale, you know, or it feels like it was, where owners, rather than just being in the background, actually started to try and make themselves seen and started to try and be part of the story and the, the media narrative around the club. The biggest factor in this is the legacy. 
isn't it? When I wrote that book on Bielsa, the, the biggest chapter in it by Miles is called The Demise. The story kind of starts around about 1999, 2000, when, as you mentioned, they started to think about spending more money on players and started to get sucked into these deals that involved loaning money to sign players. So rather than using your own money or using a benefactor's money or a shareholder's money, you were borrowing it, essentially. And every time you borrow money, you run the risk that you're going to get into trouble and you can't pay it back, which is pretty much how, how it was. But people who've read that chapter who didn't know a huge amount about Leeds have said to me, it's absolutely mad. That is absolutely bonkers from when, start to when, finish. When you get into the nuts and bolts of it, it yeah. it's, it's insane, isn't it? Yeah. So you're running through the Krasner era, you're running through Bates, you're running through GFH, you're running through Chilino, and then, you know, as obviously that book is time-stamped because of when it was published. But then you you, you hit, finally, the Randrizani era, which, let's be honest, has a very difficult first year, um, certainly on the pitch, and, and in terms of some of the decisions made. But then runs into Bielsa when suddenly it's like the sun coming over the horizon. But promotion is 16 years on from relegation out of the, the Premier League. But it's further on from when the chaos started. You know, it's 17 years on and more from Ridsdale resigning. It's 18 years on from a leader getting sacked and them not getting into the Champions League. You, you're talking the best part of two decades. And that is a long period for people who support a club and pay to go and watch a club to suffer through and it is going to dictate the way they feel about it the way they they think um, how they view what went on back then and I think it's really difficult to say to somebody you should be a bit more you know a bit more forgiving about the Rids I, I think I think people can see what was good about the Rids leader and it was the sudden challenge for major major honours the bigger biggest honours going you know they were right there they were right in the mix but the cost of it was massive. Yeah, and you can trace a direct line back through the owners that we've had post-PLC, post-Ridsdale, and see how one ultimately impacted the other going forward. Like, you know, you look at the, the, the Krasner regime, for example, sold Thorpe Arch and Ellen Road to pay for their, their debts, the borrowing that they'd taken on in order to keep the club going. And we're only still now, all these years later, getting to a situation where you know, there has been an agreement. Kinnear mentioned to us on over on the square ball, I think it was the pre-season show that we did with him, that there's, there's an agreement being come to with the owners of uh, of Thorpe Arch so Leeds can continue to use it. It's confidential. We don't know what the details of that are, but the fact that it's still impacting things now, because Leeds would have had to move out. I think it was, was it 15 years they got, basically, because they, they didn't buy back I, I th- Thorpe Arch. I believe Arch, the lease on both properties was 25 years, 25, so I think sorry, ran yeah. through to 2029. But the buyback on Thorpe Arch expired in 2009, which was why, why there was the furore over Delft being sold to Aston Villa. And the assumption, I think, fairly fair assumption, that Delft being sold would mean that the training ground would be bought back, which it wasn't. Yeah. And you remember the scenario where Bates, in the end, asked the council to lend him money um, to do it, or to lend the club money to do it. The council said, we'll do that if you tell us who runs, who owns the club, because at the time it was opaque and, and it wasn't declared who the, the ultimate owners were. That didn't happen, so there was no cash given, um, no no loan um, approved. Thorpe Arch buyback elapsed. And you know from that point onwards, if it was ever going to become Leeds United's property, it was going to have to be done through a private sale agreement as opposed to the original price that, that had been agreed. Yeah, so that knocks on from the Krasner era into the, the Bates era. And Bates weaponised the whole Ridsdale era in terms of dividing the fans and trying to get the fans to fall into line. You remember him saying that you know, the boom and bust years are over. 
we're not going to be spending like that anymore. And that therefore there was a certain number of fans who then fell in support of that approach because they were fearful of a repeat of that previous yeah. era. Yeah, for sure. And then with Bates, you might remember towards the end, there was a loan taken from Ticketus, I think, to pay for the East Stand. Um, I might be right in saying. And that was set against season ticket money, which is going um, to pay off that loan. Uh, one of the things GFH inherited, but then GFH built up debts, achieved nothing of note. That was thrown onto Chilino. I still, I've still got a copy of the share purchase agreement between GFH and Chilino. And it's absolutely unbelievable. I mean, Chilino always said, I never do due diligence on football clubs because if I do, I won't buy them because I'll see what the problems are and I'll say, I'm not getting into this. But it's absolutely incredible the way in which that was allowed and, and agreed to favour GFH, who had, to my mind, contributed next to nothing through the period when they'd, they'd been in charge. Chilino takes that on and then he sells to Radrizani and at that point the stadium is still under you know the ownership of Jacob Adler and then Radrizani does the deal to, to buy the stadium but that this is the point really and it goes back to what David Richmond was saying that it became kind of long-term toxic even though people would say Leeds should be a Premier League club Leeds have vast potential Leeds have this that and the other in an era where people were starting to spend a lot of money on football clubs and you were starting to get you know major investment so Abu Dhabi over at Manchester City and you had Abramovich at, at Chelsea and everything else Leeds always seemed to be this club where people would say don't think so no not for me don't think we'll bother and and you know now you have 49ers enterprises in the background saying we will do this deal if um, if Leeds don't get relegated this season so perhaps finally Leeds have reached the point where they are going to be part of this ownership revolution too but in the meantime you have, a, you have to go back to the season ticket discussion that we were having. You have a stadium that has been desperate for upgrades for ages, but but hasn't been because Leeds, as a result of what went on in the early 2000s, were out of the Premier League for ages, didn't have the money to do it or weren't prepared to put the money they did have towards that. You know, Thorpe Arch is no longer front, you know, no longer a front runner when it comes to the best training grounds in the country. It just isn't. You know, it's good. It's good, good facilities there, but it's not state of the art in comparison to, to some of what else is out there. So, the Ridsdale era has, in its own way, defined 20 years, 25 years it has. And I think it's important to accept that. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Just returning to something we spoke about in part two there, Phil, the impact on our, on our current mindset when it comes to, to Leeds United. Um, and you kind of failed to notice the um, the thread that popped up about the, the state of things inside Ellen Road. And it, and it does provoke a certain amount of sympathy, doesn't it? I, that, did, I did mention it in one of the pieces, pieces last week. It was about a guy called Ben Leandro who'd randomly thrown into the... The Q&A on the morning of the Brighton game that he was coming up on a train from London 
for his first game since as he put it Yeboah scored that wonder goal against Liverpool and a lot of us said hang on a minute that, that was 1995 you know where, where have you been since then and, and how is this your first home game since, since that point so I did a piece with him and, and we told the story of why but I did lead off in saying you know he got to Ellen Road and he did kind of feel like just how it was you know exactly as it used to be in 1995 it's hardly changed at all and I think the definite highlight was the um, the kids play area outside wasn't it <laughs> that Michael tweeted about quite, post-apocalyptic quite something quite something yeah. but yes yes very aware of that yeah but it did provoke a, a certain amount of sympathy within me to think that I mean you can you know setting aside any matters of whether it's basic cleanliness or maintenance yeah. or whatever yeah. but to use a phrase you can't polish a turd, can you? So you look at like the the West Stand that has been there since the mid fifties, yes, and quite clearly needs replacing. I, you know, you have to wonder about the safety certificate for the West Stand and how hard it is to get that every uh, every year from the local authorities because that is an it's an old building. There's no two ways around it, and you get the feeling that if and when the 49ers do complete this takeover, if we stay up, 49ers enterprises that that will be it's it's well, it's number one on the agenda, isn't it? Really to get the stadium up to scratch yeah so you can't polish it you can put in a new press box a new press room but eventually you, you can't to, polish it uh, but you can uh, roll uh, it in event- eventually you have to flush <laughs> it away don't you so that's what will happen with the West End it will get completely gutted flattened rebuilt and I also think we were chatting about this before we came on air that the Ridsdale era and what came after the sustained period of nothing you know this sustained period where ambition didn't seem at its height and there didn't seem too much direction and there was no kind of sense among the crowd at Leeds that they were heading for big things at, at any stage. I think it has definitely influenced the way in which people around here think about ownerships generally. You know, I think it has created a, a certain level of totally understandable cynicism and, and scepticism about what goes on at boardroom level. And again, another legacy of that period where you kind of learn to distrust ownerships because that's what can, can happen. And I remember reading someone writing once saying whenever people buy into clubs particularly if they appear to be very rich people get very excited about it but actually your starting point should always be to be sceptical about the people who are coming in you should be sceptical about club owners because they do need to be monitored they do need to be held to account you do need to keep an eye on what they're doing It has completely coloured my view though I thought about this as, as a specific example like you know the red wine kit the Rafinha kit yes. if you like the um, the third kit that it, it was sold to us on the um on the basis of being a tribute to the uh, the UEFA Cup winning red shirt, whatever it might have been. I can't remember if it was the Fairs Cup or something like that. And that might have just been marketing guff by Adidas. Don't know if somebody at Leeds came up with it, whatever it might have been. But I saw that and I thought, that's bullshit. They're just lying to us again. That was my immediate reaction. And I now know with the aid of a little bit of hindsight that my reaction to that was in part influenced by all the stuff that's gone on in the decade and a half before. Because you start to spiral, don't you? It's all kind of rooted in the idea that these people don't really understand the heritage of our club. They're just saying this, you know, and and it, and it's it it fosters that mistrust that you're talking about there. I think it does, and and football has and it's a it's I, a kit, and it doesn't matter. It's a marketing guff. No one cares. I, I feel Not like really. I feel like football has become quite an angry sport, quite an angry industry and an arena. And I guess the ability to look at that stuff and to roll your eyes a little bit, but to say in the grand scheme, does it really matter? Like if. Is it a particularly big deal versus the the things that are a, a really big deal in football? It's not really, is it? But those those little little things niggle. I just wonder whether football's lost its perspective slightly. I saw a few with Leeds, like they they have great colours to work with as kits, and it strikes me as being quite sensible that a home kit that is 
predominantly white every year and an away kit that is predominantly yellow every year is probably not the worst way to go. Now, I appreciate that one of the best-selling kits ever was the charcoal and pink kit in the in the promotion season. Which still, was, still the only shirt I've bought since the Champions League era, ironically it's kinda, enough. It's kind of great, isn't it? Yeah. It, it kind of is. I mean, I'm way too old to wear football shirts anyway and I don't think I'd have particularly suited that. But I understood why people went for it and it sold in, in really big numbers. In the Romanoff article um, about Hearts, there's a story about him wanting to change the kit to green and yellow. I can immediately see a problem with that and I'm not a Hearts fan. Yes, um, so... <laughs> That is pitchforks, burning torches on the streets material. Um, so for anybody who's not aware, that's the colour of both Hibs, the Cross City well, rivals, uh, and Celtic. D- green and yellow is the colour of the Lithuanian flag, along with red, yeah. and it was also the colour of Kaunas, the club that Ron- Romanov owned um, in, in Lithuania. Green and white is Hibs. Celtic do tend to factor the yellow in as well. And as somebody's quoted in the piece is saying, by all means, release a green kit uh, or a kit with green on it, but in the sales column you can put zero because nobody will buy it and that's a that's fact that sort of stuff you're kind of asking asking for trouble maybe the what the Ridsdale leader and what came next did was to make everybody annoyed about everything or, or to, I guess to have everybody's eyes on everything you know to analyse and, and scrutinise everything and that is that is really 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 important I guess you just have to you just have to pick your fights I suppose the point I'd make is that alongside the Ridsdale article today there's a column with David Prutton about referees and you'll not have forgotten that Prutton got a 10 game ban back in 2005 for pushing Alan Wiley during that game between Southampton and Arsenal and he regrets that massively finds it very embarrassing to watch has no excuses for it at all says that one of the most humiliating things about it is that he can't he lost it so badly he can't really remember the actual moment where he pushed Wiley so that is the definition of losing it you know I was so deranged at the time and he's watched the tackle on Perez's back. He's seen still photos of it. He says himself it was, should have been a straight red card, not a second yellow. So really, what what am I complaining about? You know, what? why am I acting like that? And obviously he now has kids playing football, um, you know, his, his son and his daughter, and sees little bits of this with referees at, at kids' games. And, you know, his attitude more and more is hardened. That he, He's pleased they punished him severely. And he thinks they should have done. And, and I think feels more than ever that that, that was totally appropriate. But that is a real, real live issue in football, isn't it? The treatment of referees down to grassroots level. Colours of kits are things that can frustrate you. But I do wonder sometimes whether, you know, a bit of perspective is being lost on on certain matters. I don't know if it's a generational thing or just the way the world has changed maybe in the last 20 years or so, I guess since the rise of the internet. And we're at a very unique place in history. I mean, do you think there's been like, there's such a greater emphasis placed on heritage now perhaps more than there ever has been in the history of, of football clubs and I wonder if it's because of the amount of internet noise that we get you know like Twitter is just like relentless there's all the other platforms you know you've got a very like in, in something like Instagram it's a, it's a visual medium so image and branding has almost been heightened to ridiculous levels and people are trying to cling on to the identity of something from from twenty years ago is you know is it is it a pursuit of your own youth? Like there's this idea now that Leeds away kits can only ever be yellow, you in, know. For uh, example, yeah, and in, in the and and no, like, you know, Leeds away kits can vary. They they can, I think, um, and you never want to be totally fixed. But then again, that's not really my fight to pick or my decision to make because I don't support the club. So you know, I think if you're you're a fan, 
you get into that argument and you you have your view and you're entitled to it. And and you know, from time to time the club should certainly certainly listen. The interview we did with Matt Rocker, which ran on Tuesday of this week, he spoke a lot about mindfulness in that, about the fact that he uses mindfulness techniques and he said it's partly to try and help him have a clear mind on the pitch. But he did say as well, you know, that there is a hell of a lot of noise now and you you need to be able to switch off to it or you need to be able to know which bits to listen to, which bits to ignore, what's important for you and and what does you good. On the subject of heritage, I think heritage is, as you say, more important than it's ever been to a certain type of supporter. I think it's more important than it's ever been to the hardcore supporter or the longer term supporter, particularly those, I would say, who have a tie to the city or to the area or a you know, long term tie to the club, you know, support that goes back a long period. This is only my opinion, but I also think, and and this is probably most true of your biggest clubs that are, that are starting to attract fans from everywhere. I also think there is now a large core of of supporters, if you want to call them that, out there who are not interested in heritage in the slightest. Do you think there's a, there's a tension between the sort of what you term the legacy fans and the newer fans, and, and, well, that, and that clubs are trying to dance between uh, them? Whether there's a tension between... I don't mean a direct tension between them, but I mean there is a tension between the expectations of newer fans and of legacy fans. Or not expectations, but wishes, you know, or priorities, things that they they see as important. So the Athletic have done a lot of coverage of the Manchester United takeover or the proposed takeover. Qatari group, obviously, Ineos as well, Sir Jim Radcliffe. You write about Qatar and the issues with the Qatari takeover and there's a lot of incoming fire. You write about Radcliffe and potential problems with Ineos. There's a load of incoming fire. And I'm not saying it all comes from people who who don't have Manchester United at heart or have no interest in the city or whatever else. But to my mind, there's always that overriding feeling of, well, who really cares if they're rich and they're going to sign lots of good players? And I know that sounds really simple and I know it sounds really cynical, but I actually think it's true. I actually think there are now a lot of people out there who follow these clubs who do just want to see them operate as a FIFA computer unit, then the, they keep signing the best players, they keep paying money for the best players. That, that That's what it's about. They, they win trophies, I, ideally. But alongside that, what about the culture? You go through Leeds now, and there are murals everywhere. There's so much more street presence, I think, and just presence generally of Leeds United in their own city than there was even in the Ridsdale era when they are in the Champions League semi-final, and certainly through the years that followed. You could walk down the street in Leeds and not really have any perception that Leeds United were there at all, you know, if you didn't know much about football. But now you've got artwork all over the place. It has kind of spread. And it matters because this is your city and this is the, the city that your club are based in. And if you lose touch with that, then what are they apart from a sports entity that might as well be based on the moon? What's the difference between... You see this in American sports sometimes, you know, franchises that move from one city to the next, one state to the next, what, whatever else else it is. If you have no tie, then what's it all about? I think there's, there's more strength of feeling among people my age who, you know, have, have followed specific clubs for reasons of often locality or, or something like that, or your parents supported them, relatives supported them, whatever else. And people now, younger breed particularly, who just latch on to whoever. I mean, that's what, I wonder, that's what I wonder, Phil, though, is, is this to do with a generational thing? I, th- and, I, think, I think it is. And I, we've, we've gone I, from being a society where we had all these these anchors, these like emotional anchors to the club, the city, and now 
you're bombarded with information from around the world constantly in the form of something like Twitter. Like, you know, because somebody in Nigeria can weigh in on Chelsea, uh, you know, and, and somebody from the Middle East can weigh in on, on Man United. And you're bombarded with this noise, noise, noise. So the place that we naturally retreat is, well, I remember what this was like 20 years ago and what emotionally anchors me to this club, which is stuff like the badge, the colours, things like that. Back in my day. Yes. Yeah, yeah sadly. Yeah. We're all victims um, of it, aren't we? Something that's important to say here, who are we to tell younger fans how they should follow football or how they should consume it? We're just not. You know, it's it's everybody's individual choice. I'll give you a good example of that. On, on Tuesday, I went to a school, a primary school in Hare Hills to do a careers day. And they asked me to come along and, and to meet. They, they brought the primary school kids in in batches, so years two to, to year six. So what would that be? 11 years old down to year two be about six years old, something something like that. Very few, I had a lead shirt with me. I had a laptop just to show them what we what we write and everything else. A few of them were able to recognise the Leeds United kit, but not that many. All of them came in, and this is absolutely not a criticism of them because their enthusiasm was amazing. All of them came in talking about Messi, Ronaldo, Mbappe. In the end, I started with a picture of Mark Rocker, Mark Rocker article on the laptop. And somebody did come in and say, oh, Mark Rocker. But in the end, I changed it to Messi. And everybody who came in was saying, Lionel Messi, over to the desk. Messi, and then we tell you that Ronaldo is better, or they prefer Messi. And these are young kids, you know. So enthusiasm my, my was, son was does absolutely it. fantastic. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's eleven, and, and he comes and barks facts at me about both Messi and Ronaldo, and I'm like, in my mind, I'm going, I don't care, but I'll listen to him because he's my son, but, and he cares. But they do, yeah, you know, they do, and it's totally wrong to sit and say, sorry, but you should be down the road sporting Leeds yeah. or I support Hearts. Isn't it amazing that I support a local <laughs> club? Not to them, it isn't. You yeah. know, they they they're really really into these players and, and understandably because football is covered in a totally different way now to what, when it was when we were kids which is like 100 years ago you know like back, back in the 1800s <laughs> um, so that I have absolutely no problem with people are entitled to follow football in any way they like and, and to be interested in it in any way they like what I think I have a problem with is people with very little connection to the club other than the decision that they're going to follow them then being vocal or strong in their opinions about what the club should be doing who should be owning them what should be changing there because the cultural aspect of it is not necessarily ever going to touch on them but in Leeds the city needs a strong football club it needs a big football club it needs a football club that has proper ties to the streets around it the people around it and as I said before when that goes if you just have this kind of like multinational company that might as well be Apple or something else take it to wherever because it's no longer Leeds United is it it's no longer Leeds United with a proper tie to the city yeah I think the, the current ownership has come under sort of flack some deserved probably some undeserved for some of the mistakes it's made around heritage like the badge for example I think is just ludicrous but the connections back to the city and like to the business community they were all torched I mean going back to the Ridsdale thing post Ridsdale when Bates was here he was at loggerheads with the business community for a lot of it wasn't he Whereas now I think we're seeing a far more harmonious approach and a city that has started to buy back into the football club again. I think the irony of the badge is that Leeds are one of the few clubs around that do not have a specific badge, do they? I mean, Heart of Midlothian's badge will always be, in some form, the Heart of Midlothian. You know, it will always be that. Whereas Leeds have changed badge several times. So I don't think actually when they came to change it, there was a opposition to the idea of changing the badge per se. I've spoken to a lot of people who aren't particularly keen on the the shield, you know, that, that Leeds have had for 
the last 20 years or so. Ironically, because it um, symbolises Ridsdale. Yeah. Even uh, though it even was, though it was, it was Wilkinson's, Wilkinson's design. Yeah. yeah, and Wilkinson's reason for doing it was that he wanted something that was recognisable in Europe and yeah. recognisable much further afield that you would look at it and instantly say, that's Leeds United. And it probably has had that effect. You know, I think, I think people, there are people around the world who would recognise that. But Leeds have changed badges, badges so many times that the only reason that was a point of conflict was because of the actual badge that was presented. It's worth adding just at this point, Phil, that it's aged terribly as well. If we had that badge now, like the style, the design of it, the graphics, the text, would have aged terribly. Yeah, it was all wrong. Yeah. It was all wrong, wasn't it? And I, I don't think that many people who, who disagree and think with hindsight that, that it wasn't a mistake. Um, it, it definitely was. Can you think of one person who might still like it? Or? Well, Radrazani has always said that he likes it. Yeah, yeah, he's always, you know, he's he's always kind of fought the corner of that badge, but it was for the best. But it's funny how it's funny how that, going back to what we were talking about before about the heritage, how that has weighed so heavily against him, I think in a really sort of quiet way, because people will look at that and go, you don't understand our club. You don't understand the heritage of it. Maybe. I mean, it pops up from time to time, um, the badge stuff. I don't I have to say, I don't hear people speaking about it a huge amount, but it was a definite error. Yeah, yeah it was a, a definite, definite mistake. But then clubs will make mistakes from time to time. And maybe none of us have, are great at, at accepting that. I kind of consider what goes on at hearts and some of the petty things from time to time that you think, well, you know, it's not a, a straight line, is it? Of No, but could you imagine Arsenal, for example, bringing out that badge? No, and, and, I, can't, and I, I can't imagine any Premier League club bringing out that badge. And I specifically mention Arsenal because I think uh, Angus Kinney was there when Arsenal rebranded their badge. Yes. Wasn't he? So um, you can see the kind of... The, the yeah, no, I, I can't imagine any Premier League club going for that badge and not facing the backlash that came. And I, but I think this is this is how, when going back to identity and emotional anchors and things like that, this is how Leeds fans want Leeds United to behave. They want us to behave with, I think nobility is probably the word. They want us to behave like a heritage football club, like a grown-up football club, like a, a Premier League football club, because it, it's to do with, well, it's about your own perception of the football club, isn't it? I think Leeds are a massively heritage football club. I think it's a great description of them, probably more so than, than most clubs out there, certainly most major clubs out there. I, I do really feel that. And I think it's important, and it, and it will be important if 49ers Enterprises do end up having its, you know, their name above the door. It'll be important for them to appreciate that and and there'll be eyes on them when it comes to what they change what they do what they do with with Ellen Road if the development does start and so there should be so there should be it's it's rich people owning clubs of high net value that a lot of people care about a lot of people invest in and a lot of people want to see run well and football will completely fall apart on the day where people stop scrutinising owners I mean, God, we'd have nothing to do, would we, with our time? <laughs> no, we'd have to go and garden or something, wouldn't we? Yeah, God forbid. Good chat, that Phil. We got quite deep there, didn't we? I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, unexpectedly so. So, in 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 the end, there was a legacy of Ridsdale, which is that we got a good old podcast chat. <laughs> there you go. Right, we'll, we'll be returning next week, then towards the back end of the week, uh, as we head in towards previewing Arsenal. That's going to be exciting, isn't it? We'll return and speak to you then. See you in a bit. The Phil Hay Show.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.